Please take your seats. The performance is about to begin. That's right. It's time for another installment of Dorkfest, the podcast. Thank you so much to everyone for listening and supporting this little endeavor of ours. We hope everyone is continuing to stay safe and healthy out there. And we hope that this little podcast has provided a few moments of entertainment, levity, and or a distraction over the past couple of weeks. Just a reminder, please follow us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast. We would love to connect with you all there. And please remember to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you enjoy podcasts. I'm Dan Freemuth, and I'll be your conductor on this particular concerto, the Alex Benedict, if you will, just without the corsage. Joining me, as always, are the dorks, my cousin and lead fiddle on Concerning Hobbits from the Fellowship of the Ring, Gabe Freemuth. Gabe, how you doing? Never late, except when I intend to be. I think I butchered that line, but listen, to, listen for the, uh, the Howard Shore behind it. You'll, you'll know what I mean. So Gabe is with us as always. I've also got my two brothers, also part of this ensemble, my middle brother and third trumpet on From Russia With Love's 007 Takes the Lecter, Josh Freemuth. Josh, how's it going? I am uh, pleased and happy, Dan, to repeat the news that we have, in fact, caught and killed a large predator that supposedly injured some listeners. But as you can see, it's a beautiful day. The podcast is open. And people are having a wonderful time. Dorkfest, as you know, means friendship. That's some great stuff there. Hope you didn't have to hang anyone up by their Buster Browns in order to keep the beaches safe. And last but certainly not least, as part of Dorkfest, the podcast, my youngest brother and the bass clarinetist for themes from both Harry Potter and Pirates of the Caribbean, as performed by the Great Valley Marching Band, Jordan Freemuth. Jordy, how's it going? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having me. You know, really excited for this installment of Dorkfest, the podcast. Hoping that I follow the rules, or hoping that I will follow the rules throughout this podcast, or as I understand them to be, more guidelines. Well, as the moderator for this particular pod, I'm certainly hoping that all of you follow the rules, or at least, as Jordan said, stay within the guidelines. So to this point, we've covered a whole host of some of our favorite film franchises, from Star Wars to Star Trek to James Bond and beyond. Now, as you may have heard last time out, we detoured from video to audio and bantered about some of the ultimate ways to experience music. Well, this time, we're setting out to combine those two dorky obsessions as we examine some of the greatest movie soundtracks of all time and the genius composers behind them. Before we delve into the bulk of this fanfare, though, a little tuning exercise for the dorks in the form of our warm-up question. Now, earlier this week, a film very near and dear to all of our hearts, The Empire Strikes Back turned 40. Now, among this group and many of our fellow Star Wars fans, this is the consensus best Star Wars movie ever made. And a big part of that is the incredible soundtrack that accompanies this cinematic masterpiece. So, dorks, what is your favorite musical moment in The Empire Strikes Back? Gabe, we go to you first. Dan, the minute you asked this question, I, I knew in a flash exactly what it was going to be. Because I think it's also probably one of my top John Williams moments ever. It's connected to a moment where I had rewatched The Empire Strikes Back for the first time in a long time. Uh, I think I was sometime in one of my years in college. And for whatever reason, it had been, you know, one of those dry spells between important Star Wars viewings. I was sitting there and I was watching it and, you know, I'm into it and Hoth goes by and it's fantastic and they're getting off into space and, you know, I'm along for the ride. And all of a sudden they enter the asteroid field and all of a sudden, you know, oh, that's not, a, that's no laser blast, something hit us. And they're going through and then you can see it in Harrison Ford's, eye, Ford's eyes real quick and you can see it in Carrie Fisher's eyes that she knows what he's thinking and he's not thinking anything good and he starts dancing the Falcon between the asteroids and there's one crescendo moment it's just John Williams and it's just the Falcon and it's just classic Star Wars sound design as this thing loops in and around the asteroids and one TIE fighter gets knocked off course and 3PO yells something stupid because he's panicking. Harrison Ford's just coolly, you know, driving it and Chewie's coolly co-piloting it and it's just perfect Star Wars. It's a perfect encapsulation of a Williams moment. Great choice, Gabe. I'm sure that was one that many of us thought about when this question was first posed. Jordy, we go to you next. You're right, Dan, definitely one that I thought about. Um, I'm going to pick one a little bit later 
in the film, um, something that I will dub and that many others have probably dubbed the I know sequence of the film. Um, this is, of course, referencing the scene where Leia, as Han is about to be frozen in carbonite, says, I love you. And Han, brash, cocky, scoundrel that he is, responds by saying, I know. Um, and what I love about the composition of this scene is that it combines so many different emotions and so many different melodies. The onset of it is sort of reminiscent of the Imperial March theme. So it's got that in there. And then you have that like really uplifting moment when Han and Leia kiss. And then for me, the best part of it is as Han is being lowered down into the carbonite, you have that, the crescendo, and it's building up and it's building up and it's building up until finally you see Han throw his head up and, and you have the sound of the carbonite coming down. And, and for me, it's just an impressive moment where, you know, really in the span of maybe not even five minutes, John Williams is able to combine all of these different emotions and all of these different melodies. Great call there, Jordy. That was certainly the one that sprung to mind for me, and you did a great job of outlining all the different tremendous aspects of that scene and the crescendo part that you mentioned, the way that's so beautifully shot where you're cutting back and forth between main characters as the theme builds, and then ultimately, you're right, our hero ends up encased in carbonite, just a, a beautiful encapsulation of the dread that exists now in this movie, the evil of the empire. So that was gonna be my number one choice. Since you took it, I'll go to my second choice and I'm gonna take a scene on Dagobah. The track on the soundtrack is entitled Yoda and the Force. And it's when Luke, unable to pull his X-Wing out of the swampy mire of Dagobah because it's just too big. He can't do it. His force ability just isn't there yet. And then here comes little Yoda, and he's able to lift the X-Wing, not only lift it out of the swamp, but park it exactly where Luke needs it to be. And all the while, Yoda's theme, which we had started to hear little bits and pieces of earlier in the film, this is when it has its big crescendo moment. You talked about, Jordy, the crescendo as Han Solo is encased in carbonite. This is the ultimate crescendo of Yoda's theme. And I thought, yep, I'm going to shoehorn Rise of Skywalker into this discussion because this is so beautifully revisited in Rise of Skywalker when Luke is able to pull Red 5 out of Octo Island for Rey to be able to take to Exegol the theme is there, the cinematography is there, but in The Empire Strikes Back, this scene is so beautiful, it's so touching, it's such a beautiful theme, Yoda's theme just to begin with, but then cinematically brought to life in that particular moment. Josh, I, we've taken three great moments. I don't want to say that we've left you the scraps. There's plenty of other great moments to choose from. What would be your soundtrack highlight from The Empire Strikes Back? Yeah, gee, guys, I mean, I, uh, I can't believe it. Gabe just pulverized that question. And so now I've been put in this ridiculous position by, by Jordan and Dan of going last. And I'm going to go with actually what was my original number one choice. And it's the debut of the Imperial March. This is an iconic piece of music that we almost forget wasn't in A New Hope. It made its debut in The Empire Strikes Back. And, and what, what strikes me about this piece of music in the movie is how it, it conveys this sense of impending dread. And in rewatching it over, the, over this weekend, all right, we get this first image of about five Star Destroyers. And like, okay, that's more Star Destroyers than we've ever seen in one place at this at one time. And then something starts to overshadow them. And we're like, oh boy, what is this? And then it's the Super Star Destroyer. Well, whoa, now we've really never seen anything like this. And then just as the Imperial March really hits its stride, we see Vader's helmet silhouette from behind and you just have this uh, oh crap moment where it's this massive arsenal at Vader's disposal what chance do our heroes have now fortunately Admiral Ozzel is as clumsy as he is stupid so um th th they're able to, to to get away but yeah the the Imperial March debut was my favorite musical moment from Empire 
Great call there, Josh, and a theme that has become so synonymous with Star Wars and, and quite possibly one of, if not the most iconic movie themes in cinema history. And of course, the mastermind behind the Empire Strikes Back's sonic brilliance is, of course, as Gabe first mentioned, John Williams. And you think of cinema soundtracks and you think of John Williams. You think of timeless fanfares like the Imperial March that Josh just mentioned. You think of John Williams. So any conversation regarding the greatest movie soundtracks of all time must at least begin with John Williams. So that's where we're going to begin. Our one-point question for this edition of DorkFest, the podcast, what are the highlights of John Williams' catalog? Gabe, we begin with you. To start off with John Williams, and yeah, you have to, you have to start off with just how unnervingly and perfectly adept the man is with developing themes, whether for, you know, it, whether it becomes associated with a franchise or whether it is specifically for a character or whether it ends up being both. John Williams has written the songs of, you know, our childhoods, our young adulthoods, um, and he's done it for decades. The man has, uh, he's on the record holder list for number of Oscar nominations and wins come to that, I think. And in terms of where to, go with John Williams. I mean, you're talking about Indiana Jones. You're talking about Star Wars. You're talking about Harry Potter. You're talking about, and these are just things that I'm, you know, listing that are even partially within our dorkdom, let alone things like E.T., like Schindler's List, like Jurassic Park. I'm sorry, I got to circle back on that one for our dorkdom's sake. I mean, you can get, and, and that's the point with John Williams. You can go on and on and on and on. And yeah, he did Superman. Yeah, he did Jaws. Yeah, he did, um, oh, I mean, just pick, you know, almost anything. He actually did the Star Wars prequels. They got him back for that. And you know what? He's the best part of the Star Wars prequels. <laughs> you have to respect the man's talent to develop, honestly, what most often are iconic themes that just stick with you that I know I find myself humming for days, weeks on end, if one, just a snatch of one, happens to get caught in my head. You know, you catch part of Jurassic Park on TV, you're going to be hearing da 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 for the next seven days. I want to touch on, Gabe, the word you used, iconic. Uh, and I think that that's a really appropriate term as it relates to the work of John Williams and many of the iconic franchises that you mentioned that I think are made even more iconic or part of them being iconic are these themes that John Williams is able to develop. Is it possible to even consider Star Wars or Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones without the music of John Williams? I mean, is that, can we even separate the two at this point or are they so embedded together in their brilliance that the one is basically with the other? I think that's the nail on the head. Initially, George Lucas wanted to use classical music sort of like Kubrick did in 2001 for Star Wars. Um, and it was George Lucas who said, let me introduce you to this guy who does some great work, some classical stuff. And that was John Williams. And the rest is quite literally history. And I think it is pretty much impossible to extricate John Williams from uh, these iconic things. And part of it is a time and place. But again, it speaks to how well the man is able to so perfectly and capture and match sound and music to image. He's able to capture the wonder and the potential, the, the depth of the stories and the characters and the worlds that Lucas and Spielberg in particular have, have crafted. And yeah, boy, I mean, it, it's hard to imagine one without the other, for sure. This idea of the music and the movies being linked, too, is, is something that is deliberate with John Williams. I, I think about the Jaws soundtrack, and one interesting tidbit that I've picked up in watching, you know, making of featurettes and behind the scenes over the years is that that was something that John Williams enjoyed playing with during while scoring that movie. He, you know, he would have the, the thump thump and that would signal the shark. And if it was faster, then it meant the shark was moving faster. And if it was louder, then that meant the shark was getting closer. And then he could kind of play with the audience. The pre-shark attack scene where Hooper is out in a boat and they're looking around and there's two kids in a, with a shark fin and we don't hear the, the thump thump there. And you're kind of, there's this eerie absence. So, so this idea of the franchises, 
um, the movies being linked with the music, it's something that is deliberate with John Williams. I think he plans for this, and that's probably why it's been able to endure for across so many franchises and movies across so many years. Yeah, and Dan, when you pose that question, you know, I think that that, that idea is it's really at the core of all great composers, John Williams certainly being one of them. This idea that, like, if you were to remove the music from the film, does it then cheapen the overall experience? And I think great composers will create works that do enhance it, and, and, and if that music is removed from it, then it does, it is to the film's overall detriment. In addition to that, one thing that I want to talk about with John Williams, too, is also just the, the breadth and the variety of the uh, work that he's composed. You know, Gabe, you did an excellent job of listing a lot of the different titles that John Williams has contributed towards. I can't remember if you mentioned Home Alone as one of them, but I wanted to bring up, this is one where I am consistently surprised when I'm watching that movie every holiday season, Josh, that's right, every holiday season I watch it, and we'll get to that point later. I'm consistently surprised or I'm consistently reminded of the fact that John Williams did in fact score that. But it's such, it's such a lighthearted collection of music. It also, for me, draws, it draws its inspiration from, you know, different classical, classical pieces. You know, when I was re-listening to some of John Williams' work, I was re-listening to the soundtrack for Home Alone. And the second song on the first, uh, from the first movie, it's called Holiday Flight. And it's very reminiscent of a work by Tchaikovsky. So what I think you're seeing there is, is not only the breadth of work that John Williams is composing, but then also the breadth of work that he is drawing from in the compositions that he's creating. One of the cool things that I found about that Home Alone score, Jay, is some of like the, the chase music almost sounds like it could have come right out of Indiana Jones or Star Wars too. Like that's really a fantastic work but by John Williams because he's able to combine these classical holiday family themes with these chase type scores that he's maybe a little more or that we know him a little bit more for with the, with the dorky franchises that we love. Well, I think for John Williams, too, when you think about John Williams, you think these huge cinematic fanfares, right? You think the Raiders March, you think Jurassic Park, you think Star Wars. And obviously, we should think these things because they are such iconic themes. But to your guys' point, so skilled at adapting the music to fit the mood of the film, if it's playful, he can go the playful route. And let's talk about Jaws just for a quick second, because when everybody thinks about the Jaws soundtrack, they think about, as Josh mentioned, the thump thump. Just those two simple notes. And Josh, you did a great job of pointing out how that represents the shark. And thank goodness they had John Williams themes. And thank goodness they had the barrels, because with as often as the shark didn't work, if they didn't have those two things, they might not have even had a movie. But in addition to that, that score has so much more going on when you think about the music behind Quint's tale and that haunting, deliberate score underneath that. And then the playful, almost pirate-esque chase when they're on the water chasing the shark, so many different themes. And then you think about the somber element that John Williams is able to compose and the beautiful music associated with Schindler's List. Obviously, a, I mean, a terribly depressing film. It does not fit for fanfares. It does not fit for the Imperial March. But John Williams has a way of orchestrating the same kind of emotion you get with the big fanfares in a much more stripped down emotional vibe in terms of that music. And Dan, when you were talking about Jaws, I also thought about, you know, the sort of obvious fact that not only do we associate that music with the film, but we also associate that music with the shark itself, with that specific character. And I think that's a really common element in a lot of John Williams's work as well. With Indiana Jones, you have Marion's theme. You have, you know, this specific music that's matching up to specific characters. You have the same thing in Star Wars. You have Leia. You have Rey later on. You have these specific pieces of music being attached to specific characters. And as we have analyzed all of these different works to the extent, extent that we have, our analysis of them are 
influenced by this music. And I guess what I'm saying there is that like the music is not just a theme for the character, but the music to a certain extent becomes part of the character, becomes part of who they are, becomes part of the lessons that they learn throughout these films. Another iconic moment from John Williams and Star Wars that we maybe sometimes forget is that opening fanfare right at the beginning of the opening crawl. I mean, that pulls me out of my seat and gets me engaged in the movie better than any start of a movie that I can remember. And, you know, lots of movies have opening crawls or opening, you know, descriptions of what's happening. But John Williams' score makes that iconic, as you said, Dan. It makes it, you're immediately thrust into this movie and excited to be there, not because of just the words that you're reading on the screen, but because of the music that John Williams is giving you. I think that's a really great point, Josh. We all we all know exactly how a Star Wars movie begins, right? The light blue text a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, fade to black, and then bang, Duh! it hits you. And Star Wars and the crawl and the theme is there. And we all remember that moment, seeing it and feeling like this is unlike any movie that I've ever seen before. And now... 40 years later, after watching all these movies, we all get together and watch Rise of Skywalker in the theater, and we're all sitting there, and we know, and I think that's an important distinction. We all know exactly how the first 30 seconds is going to go. Is it any less powerful for any of the four of us than it has ever been, even though you know exactly what's going to happen? Not at all. It's evidenced by the inevitable cheers that always accompany that movement when you're seeing it in the theater even at Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> well, that was before we saw you, the rest of the movie. You, you, you got, <laughs> Easy. And you rewatched all, that cut, one yet? I'm cutting all this. And Dan, the movie for me that in theaters was that moment where like, holy cow, I've never seen anything like this in theaters before was Jurassic Park. I was nine years old when that movie came out and I remember going to see it with my mom in the theater, like taking this nine-year-old to see this, you know, dinosaur monster movie and just being totally blown away, staring agape up at the screen, up at Brachiosauruses and T-Rexes and Velociraptors and None of that would have had the same effect would it not been for John Williams' score. Another thing that I, I would be remiss if I didn't say something kind about Indiana Jones. This is a, a franchise that I kind of trashed during the Villains podcast. And John Williams' music in Indiana Jones is some of his best work. I feel like we need to spend some time here. Yeah, I, I will happily piggyback off of that because I completely agree. I think the Raiders March is the single best fanfare that John Williams has ever created. And I say that owning multiple versions of each of the original Star Wars trilogy soundtracks. But I just think the work the Raiders March is so brilliant. It's so iconic. It's so singable. It's so memorable. And it fits so perfectly with that character. Yes, Darth Vader is linked to the Imperial March theme. Yes, Princess Leia has her theme. Gabe did a great job of noting how John Williams has created themes for franchises and themes for characters. But the Raiders March is somehow linked to both Indiana Jones, the franchise, and Indiana Jones, the character. And I don't know that it's a hot take necessarily because of how iconic that theme is, but I think it's his single best piece of work. I think that's a totally defensible argument, Dan. Um, and I might even agree with you. I mean, it, it, it sounds like adventure. You've got the, the sort of martial beat in the background because it is a march and that, you know, you could even argue that speaks to the eventually Indy will always do the right thing. It belongs in a museum. He's always going to go and punch a Nazi. You know, you can't fault a guy like that. And then, you know, you've got that lone bit of brass at the front of it. That's, you know, carrying the melody and it's, and it's going through all of that kind of on its own merit, you know, very leading the charge. And you can play that against, you know, 
galloping away into a sunset. You can play that as you're, you know, riding off on uh, the back of a horse or around. I guess as long as you're on a horse, it's 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 totally fine. Or maybe if you're running away from a giant boulder. But no, that's a song for all kind of adventuring. That might be one of John Williams' purest examples of matching the sound to or of making the sound of a character. One little tidbit about that I came across in my research is that he can kind of thank Spielberg a little bit for for the bridge for that the that Raiders march that was originally John Williams came to Steven Spielberg with two options and he he played him the first one dun, 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 dun. and Spielberg was like yes this is fantastic this is the one we have to do and John Williams was like okay well let, let me give you this other one dun, dun, dun. Dun, 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 dun. and Spielberg was like, well, why don't you just put them together? Use them both. They're both great. And that's, of course, what John Williams did. And that's how we ended up with this iconic piece of music. And so, Dan, maybe you're right in that this is the best thing he ever d- did because it's two of these fantastic fanfares in one. It's really cool to hear that story. I never have. And just to offer back as a counterpoint, another part of the uh, an earlier story from the Spielberg-Williams relationship Reportedly, uh, the first time Williams came in to play him the music that he had worked up for Jaws, uh, he played it, he plonked out the notes, the, the Jaws thump, and Spielberg apparently said, <laughs> okay, John, but Chip, but tell me what you really have. So at least over time, it seems like they certainly learned to work together. I mean, certainly that collaboration has produced so many great scores. I mean, we, we do probably in all fairness have to give Steven Spielberg a significant shout out on this podcast for being at least partially responsible for all these great Williams scores. And as we know, he is no doubt listening, but on that, on that same point, you know, going back to Dan's Dan's take, I think it speaks to just the overall brilliance of John Williams, because you're right, Dan, that is a perfectly defensible take. And we could pick songs from Star Wars, songs from Jurassic Park, songs from Harry Potter, songs from Schindler's, from the entire list of his catalog, and they're all defensible takes because it's all brilliant. And that speaks to sort of like the sonic brilliance of it. But then also I just wanted to touch on briefly the, the award brilliance too because it's not just us four dorks saying like, hey, this guy's good at what he does. But the Academy says that too. He's at 50 Oscar nominations as of 2019. He's won five. If I'm correct, he's the only person that's won five for five different films. He won for Fiddler on the Roof, Jaws, Star Wars, E.T., and Schindler's List. John Barry also won five, but he won for Born Free, both the song and the score. We've been saying it over and over again. It just speaks to the overall breadth of his work and the overall impressive nature of his work. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Jordy. And you mentioned the Oscar nominations and the wins for John Williams. On top of that, he is the composer of record on six films as part of the AFI Top 100. On top of that, the American Film Institute uh, released its top 25 greatest film scores of all time. And John Williams was the only composer to appear three times doing so at number one with Star Wars, number six with Jaws, and number 14 at E.T. So as we said at the top, if we're going to talk best movie soundtracks, greatest film composers of all time, we have to begin the conversation with John Williams. Before we get to the other half of that equation, the other half being literally everyone else, it's time to dole out the point for our one point question. And I thought everybody made some really tremendous points in the opening salvo here. Josh did a great job of noting the Jaws thump thump and really talking us through how that basically became the shark character when he was not on screen. And also, Josh, tremendous research on that Raiders nugget. I did not know that either about how John Williams actually presented two different themes and that wonderful partnership between Spielberg and Williams said, no, just mash it up. It'll work even better. Jordy, you made some great points talking about Home Alone. You're right. I think an often forgotten John Williams score that's great and speaks to the playfulness that he's able to evoke. And you made a really interesting point, I thought, about music becoming part of the characters. 
that stuck with me in particular and I thought was some really astute analysis. But I'm giving the first point to Gabe because he came right out of the chute by mentioning that John Williams does a great job of developing themes both for franchises and for characters. He went on to mention that these he has created themes both for our childhood and our adulthood. I remember listening to a Boston Pops plays the music of John Williams cassette tape when I was a kid. And now at 38 years old, I still listen to John Williams via Spotify. So you're right. He continues to create these themes for all of us. And Gabe, you hit the nail on the head. John Williams, as it relates to the Raiders March, it sounds like adventure. It sure does. And it sounds like you're getting the first point in this Dorkfest, the podcast. So well done there, Gabo. Well, that's really great because um, I don't know anything. I'm just making this up as I go along. <laughs> well, you've done an outstanding job of making it up to this point. But now it's time to move on to our two-point question and may have teased it just a little bit a moment ago. Now we need to talk about basically everybody else who composes music for film. So our two-point question, Josh, we're going to begin with you. Who else composes original film scores on the level of John Williams. Well, I'm going to pick up where Jordy left off at the end of the previous question, talking about another decorated composer named John, and that's John Barry. C composed all the, if, if we're honest, all the best James Bond scores. You know, similarly to Indiana Jones, we haven't we haven't focused on James Bond yet on this podcast. It's really difficult to underestimate how much we for love James Bond movies, and these scores that John Barry produced for these films are iconic in very much the same way that John Williams scores are for Star Wars and Indiana Jones, etc. I was tickled when when Dan you introduced me on this podcast with 007 Steals the Lecter, which is just a fantastic piece of music from, from Russia with Love. Probably my favorite uh, James Bond movie. You keep going down the list, Goldfinger, Thunderball, uh, You Only Live Twice, Honor Majesty's Secret Service, and it continues decades later with Moonraker, Octopussy, and The Living Daylights, which is an unbelievable score. And one of the things that struck me about John Barry in looking at all, at all of these, and it's maybe evidence of the fact that he started his career as as like a as a as a pop musician in that John Barry creates scores that work really great as songs too and Jordan mentioned this when he said that John Barry had won the best original song for Born Free which is a terrific song a terrific score but John Barry's also been able to do this with the, the songs for Goldfinger and Thunderball, You Only Live Twice. We have all the time in the world from Honor Majesty's Secret Services, a John Barry composition, even though Louis Armstrong sings it. John Barry has, has been able to straddle both sides of this musical coin, creating the score and the song in a, in a way that I'm not sure any other composer has done it better. You could say nobody does it better. Josh, that's John Barry is a, a consistently, I think, overlooked example, even sometimes among our esteemed dorkdom. Um, John Barry absolutely had an ear for for what was catchy and for what was propulsive and for what drove an action scene. And he was not without a sense of adventure himself. I mean, you mentioned the automatic Secret Service score. I mean, that opening theme itself could qualify as potentially the single best Bond main theme that has yet been conceived. It's just a great piece of music. Um, I just want to follow up on, it's tough to follow up on something like that, but I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, now that we're talking about the rest of the field, Hans Zimmer, who for years, uh, it, who is arguably sort of the, the person that got me into like movies and all this kind of dorky stuff in the first place, that caveat, of course, I wasn't already into thanks to, you know, the rest of the field here. You know, Hans Zimmer was the guy who I noticed, you know, this sounds similar to this. Obviously, John Williams, I think at that point, I knew that Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark sound, sounded the same, but, you know, they might as well have taken place in the same universe at that point, just at different times. Hans Zimmer was a guy who I heard between a couple movies, and as I followed his career, he has just grown, grown and blown up, and um, I actually got to attend a concert of his uh, at some point, and 
boy, even live, they're mind-blowing. It's mind-blowing stuff. It's Gladiator. It's Man of Steel, which is not a great movie, but a far better soundtrack than it ever could have deserved. As, as much as I respect John Williams for his original Superman theme, I think Hans Zimmer has my heart for his Man of Steel work, which again, I must say, I wish had a better movie attached to it. Um, but Hans Zimmer has just example after example, back to The Lion King, which I think remains his only Oscar. And just again, a, a surprising amount of work that you would never expect. And it's always top notch. Gabe, I want to follow up on your Hans Zimmer point, because that's a name that certainly jumps to the forefront for me, particularly in the last probably five to 10 years of other film composers outside the likes of a John Williams and a John Barry. And we talked about the relationship between Steven Spielberg and John Williams in our one point question. And I think Hans Zimmer starting to develop a similar working relationship with Christopher Nolan. His work on Inception, uh, The Dark Knight, and then The Dark Knight Rises, uh, Dunkirk, those are some scores that jump out to me. And when I think about a Christopher Nolan movie, I think about um, a mystery that is sort of unraveling and being solved as you're going through. And when I listen to some of the best themes that I enjoy from Hans Zimmer's work, I think about the theme, the time theme from Inception, the track Imagine the Fire from The Dark Knight Rises, and Supermarine from Dunkirk. And as I was listening to these themes the other day, this phrase stuck in my mind of haunting escalation. And it felt like that theme was taking place within those tracks, but that that also tied in with what a Christopher Nolan movie is kind of all about. They throw a lot at you in the beginning, and it builds and it builds and it builds until the solving of this mystery. And it's not usually a pretty tight knit, easygoing kind of ending. There's these haunting elements as it continues to build and build and build. And I think the music of Hans Zimmer portrays that beautifully. And when you brought up, you know, a composer that is typically linked with a director or with a creator of certain films, another one that immediately came to mind for me is Danny Elfman, specifically with all of his work with Tim Burton's films. You have Nightmare Before Christmas, you have Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, as well as the two Batman movies, Batman and Batman Returns. And I think, you know, they, similar to what you were saying with Hans Zimmer and Christopher Nolan, you also have this this way of the, the music sort of matching the overall feel of the films. For me, when I think of Tim Burton, I think of like a, just a general like macabre, like a, a hauntingness that's, that's amusing. Um, and, and I think for me, one of the films that did that best was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. But I think Danny Elfman did a really nice job of mimicking that same sort of feel or rather adapting his music or composing his music to enhance that same idea in those films. Another composer that I wanted to bring up and, and frankly, one of the, frankly, the first one that came to mind when we were thinking about this question for me was Howard Shore. Most notably for me with The Lord of the Rings, you know, so many amazing pieces of work, but then some of the other works that he's associated with. You have Gangs of New York, you have Hugo, you have Spotlight, you have Silence of the Lambs, Seven, Philadelphia, The Departed. So, you know, similar to what we were saying, or similar to what I was saying was so impressive about John Williams' work, is you had the breadth of work, you had the wide variety of films that he could attach himself to, and I feel like Howard Shore is right up there as well. I just want to absolutely agree with you real quick to say, yeah, again, Howard Shore's work in Lord of the Rings, I will never miss an opportunity to extol the virtues of Lord of the Rings here on this program. Howard Shore's work is up there with, I got to say, I think almost anything John Williams has done, even from my childhood. Uh, Howard Shore, it, it sounds like even, you know, reached into Middle Earth, pulled out a couple of pages of sheet music, and we heard the end result. It, it's That's something that also is pretty perfect. And yet, you know, uh, Howard Shore does have a great, as Jordy pointed out relationship with a few other directors um, and on, on Peter Jackson's next project, King Kong was replaced uh, for another composer, one James Newton Howard, who is quite a force in his own right. But it's interesting to see how maybe sometimes it's even the project that makes a collaboration work. Um, and it could be that some of these pairings have a great track record and sometimes it is, uh, maybe it is just a good relationship. And since I've got the mic, I want to make one final Hans Zimmer plug for his interstellar score, which may be my favorite. That's just, an epic prayer for humanity if ever I heard one. And Gabe, speaking of Hans Zimmer and upcoming movies, he is scoring No Time to Die, which 
we were all supposed to have seen by now. And I, I get I get frustrated. I, I get angry every two or three days when I remember that I should have seen that movie already. Um, but now we have to wait until November or who knows when. But I, I, I am really, really excited to see what Hans Zimmer does with a James Bond movie. It's everything I didn't know. I didn't realize I wasn't actively wanting. Like, of course, I want a Hans Zimmer Bond score. What? Yeah, yeah I, I did. I, I didn't. I guess I didn't realize that was a choice. Like, if it can't be John Barry, then you, and you know, it's never going to be John Williams, and that's fine. I, I expect and respect that. But like, oh, Hans Zimmer wants to do. Yes, please sign me up for two. All right. So we've talked about Star Wars, and we've talked about. James Bond, we've talked about Raiders. How in the world have we not talked Star Trek yet? And there have been a couple of composers who have actually gone through the Trek realm through the years. Star Trek has not been as fortunate as Star Wars to be able to have John Williams just link straight throughout. But I think a number of tremendous themes have come out of Star Trek. And I just want to mention a couple of names. Jerry Goldsmith, scored Star Trek The Motion Picture. Now, arguably, his most impressive uh, piece of film scoring work was done on the Planet of the Apes in the late 60s. But mentioning him on the Star Trek front now, he gave way to James Horner for Star Trek's two and three. That's probably the peak of Star Trek music as it relates to cinematic works. But I also want to give a nod to Michael Giacchino, who has done some tremendous work with the newest realm of Star Trek. When you think about Star Trek 09, you think about Into Darkness, another film where the music is far greater than the movie itself, and then the work on Star Trek Beyond. But when you have to follow on the heels of these iconic themes, that is no easy assignment, yet he's created new themes that blend into that universe that seemed to fit. And he did it not only with Star Trek, but then did it with the Jurassic Park franchise as well, incorporating those old iconic themes while also mixing in some new ones. He's a, a newer composer on, on the, you know, the scope of these colossal summer blockbusters that I've enjoyed an awful lot. It's worth noting that Michael Giacchino cut his teeth on, uh, if you have a fond memory of a Pixar movie, it's probably... Uh, holds true that Michael Giacchino scored that movie. So whether we're talking about the, you know, the Bond fantasies of The Incredibles or the heartbreaking opening chords of Up, that was brought to you by Michael Giacchino, who, yeah, I agree, has um, really made some excellent strides in, in the music world and consistently churns out great work. And not only has he done everything Dan has named, he's going to be the next guy to tackle the Batman theme, uh, doing it for Matt Reeves' upcoming The Batman, which, again, who knows when that's going to come out, thanks to everything in the world today. But um, Michael Giacchino is also probably the person I would most name initially heir apparent to the style of Williams' work. It's that big, broad orchestral sound. He's, uh, he's somebody I like a lot. I thought that too, Gabe, uh, probably, you know, starting in that, you know, five years or so ago range. Uh, another thing that Gene Kino did uh, was the TV show Lost, uh, something that I was obsessed with for several years of my life. But I think where Gene Kino has kind of suffered is that these movies, while the scores are great, we keep saying that the movies aren't that good. And John Williams, John Barry, Hans Zimmer, you know, they've got great movies too. And so I think in order for Gene Kino to, to achieve that next John Williams status, the movies are going to have to start getting better, which unfortunately he doesn't have a whole heck of a lot of control over. Dan, one, I wanted to go back to one thing that you talked about when you brought up James Horner, because it made me think about how, and to a certain extent, I think we see, with, see this with Giacchino, that you have a composer who is creating work that is emblematic of the franchise. You know, I think about how Giancino created a, you know, basically a, a new opening score for Star Trek. Going back to James Horner, I think there you saw a composer that was able to not necessarily capture the whole film, but capture specific moments especially well perhaps none better than the battle in the, in the Mutaro Nebula. I, I guess the point that I wanted to bring up there, the, being the idea that you have these composers that are able to create work that is emblematic of the overall franchise, whereas you have other composers that are able to create more emblematic, more powerful moments within the film. 
in one quick defense of Michael Giacchino, he also, I think, did an excellent job on the latter two installments of the recent Apes franchise. That's true. Yes, that 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 third Apes movie. I remember going back and listening to that that soundtrack immediately after watching the movie. The, I, I got to hear more of this. You're right, Gabe. That was really good. You just you know don't count the kid out. You know he, he's got. I'm not saying he's done. Here. I'm just saying that Star Trek 09 and Into Darkness and Beyond did not become New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. You know unfortunate but true all right so star trek those three star trek movies not quite the awesome trilogy that the original star wars movies were but i do want to go to another trilogy and that's a trilogy near and dear to my heart and that's back to the future i think it's got some really fun playful music from alan silvestri i think often gets overlooked but let's talk about alan silvestri for a moment because he did back to the future he did Forrest Gump, Polar Express, and Gabe, I'm looking to you now, because he also did the Avengers, that iconic now Avengers theme that we associate with the band all getting together. He did work on Endgame and Infinity War, and I think we need to at least spend a moment recognizing some of his accomplishments. He did um, kind of what I thought was going to be impossible. He created a modern really catchy and hummable movie theme. I mean, honestly, as much as I love Hans Zimmer, if it comes down to, say, him or John Williams when it comes to just simple themes and who's going to make a memorable one, Zimmer's going to lose every time. He makes great music. He makes great, you know, matching music to the sound, to the image music, but it's um, themes. Nobody does them like John Williams, and Alan Silvestri did it for the Avengers. It sounds proud. It sounds like action you know, it inspires you, and, it, and it's proved so flexible over the years, too. Um, you know, whether it is in its original, you know, brassy form for the first Avengers movie, or whether it's in its sad, slow piano form for all the marketing for Infinity War and Endgame, or whether it's in Endgame itself, when it's preceded by just this glorious dramatic buildup of thumping, just these massive drums, and then it finally rings out, and, you know, every character ever goes to trash Thanos, and uh, it's just glorious. Marvel in general has, um, there's a uh, sort of a house sound to, uh, to Marvel's scores at this point. Um, there's a few, I think, that have stood out. Mark Mothersbaugh on uh, Thor Ragnarok. I think Henry Jackman's work on the Captain America movies. And we should mention Ramin Jawadi, too, who uh, originated all this with Iron Man, who then went on to score a little program called Game of Thrones. But uh, yeah, no, Alan Silvestri, I think more than anybody, really set the tone for what the sound of the Marvel Universe is going to be. And, and yeah, props to him. It might be uh, back to the future was, you know, uh, all due respect there. But uh, yeah, that's um, for a modern masterpiece. That's as close as anybody's gotten. Again, if we're comparing him to the King Williams. So I'm going to go into another genre that we haven't yet touched on, and that's baseball movies. Uh, another James Horner score that is unbelievable is Field of Dreams, but also Randy Newman and doing The Natural. Uh, I mean, these are two scores that 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 I love to listen to. Uh, Linking back to our most recent podcast, uh, my wife and I have seen Billy Joel in concert a lot. And right before he comes out, he always plays over the, you know, over the sound system, the natural, the theme from the natural. And it always gets me excited, even though I'm not the world's biggest Billy Joel fan. It does make me excited for his concert, knowing that he loves this music in this baseball movie that I also love good enough for Billy Joel it's got to be good enough for the rest of us right and I and I agree that is the nat the his work on the natural is absolutely outstanding and I think Josh you bring up Billy Joel and that actually sort of serves as a nice little segue to one other realm of you know film composers that we haven't touched on and that's quote-unquote rock and roll artists who are now serving as film score composers as well don't worry, I'm not going to go off on an hour-long Mark Knopfler tangent here, but he has been awfully successful at scoring films when you think about Cal and Local Hero, uh, Last Exit to Brooklyn, A Shot at Glory, and of course, everybody knows The Princess Bride. Mark Knopfler has created a number of tremendous film scores, but then also uh, Johnny Greenwood, who is one of the guitar players for Radiohead, has come into a ton of success scoring films 
um, work with Daniel Day-Lewis on Phantom Thread, uh, and then there will be blood as well. And Josh, I know uh, you're a big fan of the social network and, and that soundtrack. So you have to give Trent some Reznor credit to Trent Reznor. Us, yeah, yeah I, tremendous work there. And those guys have become very accomplished there. So I think it's also been very interesting to watch guitar rock-centered artists delve into movie soundtracks and have a ton of success there as well. On a slightly different note, Dan, I also wanted to uh, bring up another composer who doesn't fall into that realm necessarily. But I think part of the reason that we haven't brought him up is because the movies that he's composing music for don't really fall into a lot of our dorkish categories, and that's Alexander Desplat. It took me a second as I was looking back over his collection of work to you know, kind of pose the question to myself as to whether or not anyone currently is more prolific than he is. Since 2010, you have Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows 1 and 2, King's Speech, Argo, Zero Dark Thirty, Philomena, Grand Budapest Hotel, The Imitation Game, The Shape of Water, Isle of Dogs, Little Women, Black Widow, and coming up in 2021, you have Pinocchio. Of those, the ones that won Academy Awards, Shape of Water, and Grand Budapest Hotel. So again, not necessarily a composer that falls into the category of the films that we attach ourselves to, but if we're talking about composers, I think we need to at least mention Real quick before we move on, Shran007 would be furious with me if we did not mention Vangelis' Chariots of Fire. I mean, speaking of what I was going off of earlier, the sports movies, the Chariots of Fire theme is synonymous with running, uh, especially running on a beach in Northern England, but just running in general. And and that is just such a triumphant uh, score that that's one that I, that, that I queue up all the time. Vangelis also uh, is notable for uh, the work on Blade Runner, which is a, a pretty iconic set of things. And before I wrap that fully, I'd like to give one shout out to Daft Punk for their work on Tron Legacy, which whatever you think of the movie is a banger of a score. Um, and somebody on the up and up is uh, a guy named Tom Holkenberg, who goes by Junkie XL, who's sort of been somebody that uh, Hans Zimmer has tapped as a protege, who has done some, uh, let's say, unfortunately less notable work on the DC Warner Brothers side of things. Hopefully one, uh, a curse that Michael Giacchino is going to be able to overcome. But Vangelis doing Blade Runner also is a nice dovetail with uh, the Blade Runner 2049 soundtrack being done by none other than Hans Zimmer. So good shout outs there all as we wrap up our two point question. Before we officially move on, I do just want to throw a few iconic names out there as well. Iconic in the sense of these are sort of the trailblazers. You may have noticed some of the names that we talked about are more recent names because these are simply the films that we're more familiar with, the composers that we're more familiar with, because these are movies that basically were made within the last 40 to 50 years and have become part of the dorkdom in which we live here amidst Dorkfest, the podcast. But we would be remiss if we did it not at least mention a few of these names. One name I want to throw out there right away, Eric Wolfgang Korngold. The work on Robin Hood in 1939. I know this is not a film that many people are terribly familiar with, but if you have not ever heard any of the score, Listen to just a little bit of it. Listen to some of the action sequences. It's John Williams before John Williams. If you want to know why John Williams sounds the way that he does, it's because of Eric Wolfgang Cornhole. We also need to mention uh, Bernard Herrmann, his work with Alfred Hitchcock. When you think about uh, the likes of North by Northwest, Psycho and Vertigo, he also scored Citizen Kane and Taxi Driver. So I want to make sure that we throw Bernard Herrmann out there as well. In addition, definitely want to mention the name of Maurice Jarre, did work on Dr. Zhivago and a film score that I've become uh, particularly fascinated with in recent weeks and months, uh, the work on Lawrence of Arabia, just one of those epic movies with an epic score to go along with it. Also want to mention Ennio Morricone, 
work on Western films, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes, that main theme, but also the ecstasy of gold, Once Upon a Time in the West, and a movie that I'm actually surprised none of you guys mentioned, The Untouchables. That great score is done by Ennio Morricone as well. Finally, Elmer Bernstein work on The Magnificent Seven and To Kill a Mockingbird, and also Nino Rota uh, for work on Godfather Part 1 and Part 2. So that's everybody else who gets involved in the film scoring game as it relates to movies. So time to dole out the points for our two-point question. I'm just going to get right to it, and I'm going to give the two points to Josh. He came right out of the shoot, extolling the virtues of John Barry and made an excellent point about John Barry being a pop musician and how that actually tied into his work being able to compose for the songs that would become the title songs of James Bond. And also while we were in the midst of the Hans Zimmer conversation, was the first guy in the group to mention and remind us all that Hans Zimmer was scoring No Time to Die and that it's a movie we all should have seen by now, but unfortunately that time will have to wait. So Josh, two points to you, congrats. Thanks Dan, I will treat these points with special care as we move on to our next port of call. And our next port of call on this particular edition of Dorkfest the Podcast is our highly anticipated three point question. Standings after two points, Josh with two, Gabe with one, Jordan, goose egg, but it's anybody's game going into the three-point question. And it's a simple one. We're going to kind of go back to that desert island vein that Jordan had in our last edition of the podcast for the warm-up question. And it's going to be a simple one. For the rest of your days, you get one or the other in terms of film scores for the remainder of your life. Who you got? John Williams or the field. Jordan, you're up first. Sort, sort of similar to the vein that, uh, Dan, you have taken in, in some of our past podcasts, I'm going to take slight umbrage with something that you said, because you called this a simple question. And I actually think of all the questions that we have dissected throughout the course of this podcast, this is the one for me that is most difficult. This is the question for me to which there is not a right answer. And that is because you're asking us to remove something from these films that is integral to them. You're not only saying, well, if you pick John Williams, then you can listen to all this, but you can't listen to anybody else over here. You're not only saying you can't listen to this music anymore. You're saying you can watch those films, but not hear the music behind it anymore. So, you know, it's this idea that like you're watching the Wrath of Khan without the Battle of the Mutara, Battle of the Mutara Nebula. You are watching Lord of the Rings without Howard Shore. You're watching Goldfinger without Dawn Raid on Fort Knox. It, it, to me, it's an it's an absolutely impossible question. I'm gonna I'm gonna give you and, and don't worry, I'm not gonna cop out. I'm gonna give you an answer to the question because I know that's what you want. And I know that's what you need, but at the same time much like I did in the last pod, I could see myself changing my mind by the time that it gets to the end of it. But all of that being said, impossibilities aside, my answer to this question is John Williams. I will take John Williams and I will take only John Williams because if I am asked to watch Star Wars but not hear the Imperial March, if I am asked to watch Indiana Jones, but not hear all the great music that's associated with that. If I'm asked to watch Home Alone and not hear the beautiful, playful score that goes along with that, it's too much unhappiness for me to deal with. So my answer is John Williams. I'm not happy with it. Okay, an unhappy Jordan selects John Williams. Gabe, which direction are you going? I mean, Jordan's right. This is absolutely an impossible question. You know, obviously we have to supply an answer. Um, Boy, where my brain's at is, um, I think I might have to borrow an argument I made in an earlier Dorkfest, the podcast, whereby I think at the end of the day, I might have to let John Williams live in my head as I remember it. All that wonder, all that music and wonder and all that. You know, I'm certain if I just hold my hands over my ears as I watch those moments of Star Wars and not hear that music, it'll be just the same. I'm sure it'll be great. 
but I think it would be tougher living without, you know, the rest of my days without hearing a bit of Rivendell or the Shire. It would be tough not getting some of, you know, the that heavy bass or or the wild electric of, you know, Hans Zimmer's later work or or some of the cool electronic progression of somebody like a Harry Gregson Williams or a James Newton Howard or even somebody I think who's gone unmentioned uh, until now, uh, Thomas Newman. If we're talking about people who've delivered notable Bond scores, I think Thomas Newman has done uh, some good work um, for a number of people, but yeah, most recently for uh, for Sam Mendes. I think I got to take the field for this one. It's going to be tough to go without John Williams, but again, these themes are iconic. It's not like you can pull them out of my memory. They're going to live there. They're going to be imperfect, um, and I'm certain there's uh, as much you can discover from Williams as any other artist, but um, I think I got to take the field. I need my Howard Shore. I need uh, I need my Hans. I need a whole bunch of folks. Sorry, John. So Gabe takes the field and mentions a number of great names that he just would not be able to live without. I unfortunately am just going to be missing those names. I'm going to be missing Alan Silvestri as Marty McFly is being chased by the Libyans. I'm going to miss... Hans Zimmer and his work in conjunction with Christopher Nolan movies. I am going to miss the dulcet tones of the Shire and Rivendell in the Lord of the Rings franchise because I'm going with John Williams. John Williams for me is where my love of film scores began and it is where it continues to be at its peak. We've talked about his work on Star Wars and it is beyond the word iconic. You cannot watch those movies without hearing those themes. Those themes, that music, just evoke the emotion and the intensity of Star Wars, but it goes so far beyond that. You can't watch Jaws without the score of John Williams. Steven Spielberg himself said that 50% of the success of that movie is a direct result of the brilliance of that score. And I can't watch Jurassic Park. I can't see those Brachiosauruses without that Jurassic Park theme. So I'm going to have to go John Williams and to all of the other brilliant composers we've talked about. I love you dearly, but I love John Williams the most. Josh, bring us home. Who you got, John Williams or The Field? I got The Field. And for me, it's it's simple. The quality quantity argument is is one that is legit is legitimate but there's also so much quality in the quantity that i'm going to choose from the field i'm going to start off by talking again about john barry from the sort of pop sensibilities that he started with to these like free-ranging like vistas almost of themes that he does in like dances with wolves i couldn't live without that i couldn't live without chariots of fire i couldn't live without field of dreams and the natural i i totally agree with gabe and i'm a little bit mad at him for stealing my point that i was going to steal from him from last week about being able to close my eyes and put my hands over my ears and hear the Raiders march and hear the Jaws theme, the, the great shark chase, and hear the tremendous themes from from Star Wars. I, I think those live in my memory so strongly that it, it would enable me to make this this difficult decision. But yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going with the field. So a terribly difficult question, but that's what we do here on Dorkfest, the podcast. We address the difficult questions. And Jordy, you made the point that this may have been the most difficult one posed to date. You did a great job of articulating exactly how difficult it was. That's why you were in contention for the final three points. Ultimately not going to go your way though, because if I went your way, it would look like I was siding with myself and that's a shifty move. And we know there's only one of, of the four of us who would go that route. Josh, I was primed to give you the three points because of the phrase you had, so much quality in the quantity. And I thought that summed it up beautifully. But then you detoured a little bit and talked about what great points Gabe had made in defense of your argument. And so with that, Gabe, you absorb the final three points on this edition of Dorkfest, the podcast. The winner for our Film Scores and Composers pod, Gabe with four points. Josh checks in with two. Jordy, no points for you this time around. That's okay. There's always another podcast. Congratulations, Gabo. 
I'm overwhelmed, and I feel it feels like Hercules takes off. You know, it's uh, this is a track straight off the Living Daylights playlist right now, and um, I'm I'm humbled and awed and thankful, and I'm sorry, John. I don't mean to abandon you. I think you're going to do just fine on your own, though. Well played, Gabo, and thanks so much to all of you gents for participating, and thank you to everyone once again for listening. Just another reminder to follow us on Instagram at dorkfest underscore podcast, and please feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you on Instagram. Please also subscribe, rate, and review wherever you enjoy podcasts. For our winner, Gabe, Participants, Josh, Jordan, and myself, I'm Dan. We hope you've enjoyed this latest installment of DorkFest, the podcast, and maybe you found something along the way, a bit of entertainment, a musical memory from your own theatrical journey, a movie fanfare dancing in your head, or perhaps illumination. And what did you find, Junior? Junior? Dad. What does it always mean, this, this Junior? That's his name. Henry Jones. Junior. I like Indiana. We named the dog Indiana. May we go home now, please? The dog? <laughs> you are named after the dog? <laughs> Got a lot of fond memories of that dog. Ready? Ready. Indy, Henry, follow me. I know the way. Ha! Got lost in his own museum, huh? Uh-huh. After you, Junior. Yes, sir. Ha! Da 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 da